Hello, and welcome to Banking Transformed. I'm your host, Jim Maroos, founder and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. I had the unique opportunity to visit WeLab as part of my visit to China in early January. WeLab uses proprietary risk management technology and advanced AI to analyze unstructured mobile data within seconds, providing consumer financial solutions to over 42 million customers across Asia. WeLab is also one of the first institutions to receive a virtual bank license in Hong Kong. Despite the advanced technology and innovative deployment of digital products and services, what impressed me the most about WeLab during my visit was the evolving culture of the organization and the commitment to employee as well as customer satisfaction. Today's guest on the podcast is Simon Long, founder and group CEO of WeLab. During our interview, Simon shares his perspective on how to build a fintech organization from the ground up and the importance of culture within a rapidly growing organization. We also discussed the lingering impact of COVID-19 on his organization and on China overall. Welcome to the show, Simon. It's great to talk to you again. It seems like just yesterday we were at your corporate office in Shenzhen discussing your business model, your organization's culture, and the dynamics of creating a fintech solution in China. But a lot has changed since then, since we were down there. And uh, I just want to find out, how are you and your team doing after the shutdown of all the businesses after the Chinese New Year? Thank you, Jim. It's good to hear from you again. And it was good to see you at our China head office in Shenzhen a few a month or so back. I think the world changed a lot since we last met. Not sure if it was a blessing or a curse. Two out of our three markets that we operate in, the Hong Kong market and the mainland China market, were the first to shut down in February. And then the Indonesia, the, the third market, uh, just began to shut down last week. Um, at WeLab, of course, our first priority is to ensure the safety of our 900-ish employees and the efficiency of our operations. And uh, interestingly, the... First two offices that shut down, the Hong Kong and the China office, came back to work uh, in March. But the Hong Kong office just shut down for the second time this week because, as you see, the second wave of the coronavirus hitting the rest of the world, Hong Kong's cases are increasing. And so we, are, we have to uh, repractice working from home and social distancing. Boy, it's interesting because, you know, we have a, a president that seems to be pushing for an early get back to work as normal but they keep on talking about the, the possible impact of a, uh, a revisit of the virus if you get back too soon. But even if you don't get back too soon, the fact that weather and other things could play an effect. When you got back to work, did you see that overall your business had gotten back to normal or was business impacted by the change? It's a lot of impact. If you think about it, right, let's talk about the Hong Kong office first and then we talk about the China office, right? In fact, in both offices, it's not just us shutting down. Our counterparts shut down, the bank shut down, even the government shut down, right? So, and when people open up in China, it's city by city. So it takes a little bit of time for everyone to get back, right? In Hong Kong, right, it's still slow. And I think people are slowly returning to the sort of work environment. But the whole economy itself has slowed down because of social distancing, uh, SMEs getting hit, especially those with physical presence. So we, we are actually uh, re-looking at the business model, re-looking at target customer base. Thankfully, as an online financial services business, we at least can rely on customers still applying for loans online. What we saw, now we don't have the numbers out yet, but when Hong Kong went through the social unrest last year, 
people also couldn't go out, right? We did see the loan application increase by almost 24% before and after. So online business without physical presence do help a little bit in such sense. So you actually, even though a lot of your business is around the lending for mobile devices, you actually saw your business increase a bit because of the need for short-term loans. It's increased a bit for a couple of reasons. I think mainly it was because, and, and people do need to borrow money, right, uh, for different reasons, right? They, when, when they find it less convenient or they cannot go to visit a physical branch in, in our competitors or traditional bank, right, they will turn to uh, online money lending platforms. Our service, the convenience and everything actually really helped. So could you tell our audience a little bit about WeLab, the niche that you serve, and what really differentiates your solution from some of the other digital banks in China? Oh, yeah, sure, sure. Yes, I think it's good to start introducing WeLab a bit to the audience. I founded the company in 2013 after working for traditional banks for around 15 years. So my background was more in risk management, banking, lending business, right? And, and over the years, we've been asking ourselves, right, how does a fintech company beat a hundred years old incumbent banks in industry where scale matter? So the answer cannot be with more money, nor with more years of experience or more people. It has to be with technology and data. So when we founded WeLab, we said, okay, we have to found a company that's data-driven to use alternate data, online data, to create a seamless digital experience. So right now, uh, we're the leading, uh, one of the leading fintech companies in Asia with one of the first digital bank licenses in Hong Kong. We have 42 million users across the Hong Kong, mainland China, Indonesia market. So basically, what we started off is to build a proprietary technology seven years ago where we can use big data and advanced AI capability to analyze unstructured data from mobile phone, from online behavior, from different behavior, combined with external data sources to predict risk rank, create scores, and also fraud detection models so that people can borrow from us seamlessly with even for those without any credit data. So this is talk about in the area of financial inclusion and yet being able to deliver a more superior performance than traditional face-to-face, that kind of branch-based lending model from banks. And when that worked, in 2015, we started offering these solutions to banks. We found banks actually need these solutions as well because, in a, for example, in a vast country like China, they can't keep on relying on opening up more and more branches, right? So the first bank that we worked for is uh, Postal Savings Bank of China. As you can imagine, a postal savings bank in any part of the world relies traditionally on the post offices, right? But they want to break free from that kind of business model. So we offer them that. And that kickstart our B2B sort of arm of the business. Right now, we have more than 300 partners there. And then we move on to the digital bank in Hong Kong that we are hoping to launch in the later part of this year. And then with that, with the such technology, right, we also began working with Alipay in China to offer a mobile phone leasing business model. So we can actually use the technology for a wide variety of things. And they were expanding into Indonesia as well to offer this B2C and B2B business model. And last December, we announced raising $156 million US dollar C round, which is one of the largest fintech financing round in Greater China in 2019. So that's a quick recap of what we do. So up to now, you've been pretty much a credit provider using digital technology. You also, because of the way you look at mobile data to support the financing of phones and the creation of loans, you're almost able to support almost a 100% financial inclusion, correct? Yeah, basically anyone with a mobile phone, we're able to serve them. And what is what we find interesting is in a big country like China, right, the mobile phone penetration is actually extremely high and it is even more efficient than offering it through a PC. 
the reason why is you think about it, a PC requires, obviously a PC is bigger, a bigger chunk you can carry it with you all the time. And PC actually requires broadband connection. When you go to like rural areas, right, it's actually easier to distribute internet services through cell phones than broadband, literally because broadband need to lay the wires, right? So that becomes a very powerful tool, right, your, your cell phone. And the cell phone also pro- provides us insights into consumer behavior that previously we don't understand. And we can uh, allow us to offer financial services uh, with almost 100% financial inclusion uh, to, to, to these customers. So how do you use mobile data and AI to create a credit model that allows you to offer credit to consumers? I mean, in the U.S., obviously, we pretty much use only credit bureau data, which leaves out a lot about overall behavior in a person's uh, ability to pay things. But, you know, with all the payments being made, or most of the payments being made through mobile devices, how do you combine the mobile data usage and AI to to create a a credit model? So the beginning of this was uh, when there was a lack of credit bureau or well-structured credit infrastructure in developing markets, right? For example, in China, even Indonesia, we use such uh, technology as well, right? What it helped us is to create, and of course, with customers' consent, right, grants insight into customer behavior. And with such behavior, we can predict the probability of repay of the individuals. For example, right, I can share with you interesting insights, right? We found that people who apply during certain hours of the day have a better repayment behavior. An example that we quote was, we're curious, right? Does what time do you think about you want to borrow money impact the quality of the customers. Now, in the past, when you're in a bank, you cannot track that because you don't know when people fill in a form when they think about they want to borrow money. You only know when people submit the form, when the branch is open, when they find the time to go to the branch, right? But with the cell phone, then it's a lot easier. When you think about it, you press the button, you apply, then we can track, right? And through time, we actually developed a lot of these insights into behavior. And what we found was actually, was quite interesting. You want to take a guess what time of the day you get the best and the worst borrower, Jim? Noon or maybe in the evening? Interestingly, throughout the day, we can't tell what is the best time, but I can tell you what is the worst time. <laughs> the worst time to out we 1 to 6 a.m. in the middle of the night or in the morning. So, well, naturally, if someone is not sleeping and they still think about they need to borrow money, right? That worries you, right? And so that's just, just an interesting, fun insight. Obviously, we do a lot more than that, right? And AI initially allows us to analyze a lot of data, but it, it also allows us to do a lot more from that, from the data analytics, and then we move on to chatbot, how we serve customers. So what we had, when the time we developed chatbot was when we had like almost like 20 million users, and we found that we just cannot build a customer service team to service such volume of customers. So we started investing in the chatbot AI as well. And then with that, we also go into uh, last year, right, income proxy model. So instead of asking customers how much money they make, we use certain attributes to predict or to guess what's the income range, right? We also use AI to do facial recognition for uh, identity verification or KYC. So there's a wide application of that. So really, the mobile phone actually gives you more data than you'd ever be able to get in a traditional loan application. I think when I was there, you mentioned even the fact that you can look at how mobile the phone is. So if the phone doesn't move very much and it's used extensively, it kind of put a red flag up there that this person may not actually be a person or their risk is higher, correct? Yeah, and those actually, we touch upon a very interesting area that we look at, which is what we call fraud detection, right? Because in certain parts of the world, there's something called phone farm, right? Where people will buy a lot of very cheap phones and create hundreds and thousands of fake profiles, 
and they will use this profile to create fake applications or attack a particular server, right? So phones actually give you a lot more insight into individual, far and more interesting than just meeting someone face-to-face in a branch. So um, in the past, I think in the beginning, you did a lot of your credit for the financing new devices, but I think you referenced the fact that now people are using it for small personal loans and things like that, correct? Um, we actually started with small personal loans. I think uh, that was the area that we started off. And then we branched off into a phone leasing or like a subscription model for phones, uh, that kind of leasing businesses. We partnered with Alipay when we started off. And then we do a lot more now than that. And can you provide an update as far as your business growth and uh, the status of the, your building of a digital bank in Hong Kong? Yeah, sure. I think it's been very exciting for the last couple of years. The business is growing very well. Um, we have now hit 42 million users and growing, um, and it's a very popular service uh, in the three markets that we operate in. And in the almost the same time last year, in April last year, we got one of the first digital bank licenses in Hong Kong that allow us to go into an extent beyond lending services, right? So Hong Kong, we are one of the largest or the largest online lenders with a very good, loyal customer base. And we've been around in Hong Kong for six, seven years. So the interesting thing is six, seven years ago, let's say a customer who is, let's say, 25 years old. Today, that individual is now 30, right? His needs in financial services is very different. It's not just in lending. They have deposits. Maybe they slowly need insurance, wealth management, and and deposits and a lot of things, right? So the digital banking license allow us to leverage on the customer base, the know-how of building a efficient fintech company and offer additional financial products to serve the individuals, right? And this also helped us to build new sets of technologies that in the future we can scale into different parts of the geography and also in the B2B business. So if I remember correctly, Simon, WeLab has been quite aggressive in recruiting people who already have served in the banking industry as opposed to simply people that have digital tech experience. Why has that been important for WeLab? Yes, I think in terms of our hiring strategy, right, we've been very focused on certain areas that we need to have people with banking experience. For example, legal compliance, risk control functions. We find that people with this background can help us to build a very strong control area, which is essential for building a healthy financial institution or fintech company. On the other hand, there are areas like marketing, e-commerce, technology, right? We deliberately find people who probably come from different areas. And we find that the best mix, right, is what we call combining the best of the old and new. I think if you have too many bankers, at the end you build a bank, but you don't have their balance sheet. If you hire too many people from tech company, you become a tech company, but you don't know risk. And we want people to be able to learn the mistakes banks made over the years without making them again, and so that we can actually have a balanced growth. So that's why you see us having a mix of people from banks and also people from a non-bank background. But the interesting part is how to get them to work well together. I think that's the difficulty, and that's a lot to do with the culture and how to get these guys to understand the different languages. So really, it's somewhat playing off of your background, which is making sure that the the people you hire understand how banking works and not to ignore that at the expense of just knowing tech. Absolutely. I think that's very, very important to build a high growth and yet sustainable fintech company. So when I was in China, visited a number of companies, visited WeBank, visited uh, Ping An and, and a couple other organizations. What makes WeLab Bank different than some of the other either legacy banking organizations in Hong Kong, which I think that's a pretty easy answer, but also different than some of the existing digital banks in China? Yeah, we're quite different in a way. 
Now we're going to build a bank right now in in Hong Kong as a start, and I think we do have a strong competitive advantage in Hong Kong, being already the largest online lender, right? And we have seven years of experience, a very good understanding of the customer's pain point, and we speak the language, right? So I think that is a very important advantage. The second one is because we already have existing team in Hong Kong, so that allows us to be able to build from there very efficient. And we have a lot of experience in building fintech startups. The WeLab Bank in Hong Kong will probably be our fourth fintech startup. The first is in Hong Kong, and then we build a second one in mainland China. We're building the one in Indonesia now, and we're now building the bank. So it gives us this culture, this agility and mentality to adopt and use technology. We're also very, very technology focused. One third of our headcount today in the whole company is actually in the technology team. So being able to be very tech focused allow us a strong competitive advantage in order to do so. And for the WeLab Bank, also versus our competitors, with the digital banking license in Hong Kong, is the digital bank is a wholly owned subsidiary for us. While most of them were actually joint ventures, so of course, being a wholly owned subsidiary allow us to be able to make quick, fast decisions and being able to pursue our goal without the need to social the the, the strategy with a couple of parties with different interests. So one of the things that you were most proud of when we visited in January was the development of a culture book that would guide your organization as it grew. Can you tell us a little bit more about this initiative that you had? Yeah, that's a very interesting one. So culture has always been a very important part of the WeLab group as a whole, right? Because when we operate in multiple offices and multiple markets, right? When all your employees get together, let's say once a year during annual party, right? Or Christmas, you want them to feel like they're actually literally from the same company rather than like meeting strangers in the streets, right? But in the past, I think we're very focused on, oh, like five cultural values and stuff like that. And we find that that's actually not enough. When we actually doubled the number of people in Hong Kong from like a hundred to like 200 now with addition of the WeLab Bank, right? We find that we need to be more prescriptive in terms of the culture. So we followed examples in US companies like Netflix and we developed a very extensive culture book. It was almost like 90 pages of it. We we're very prescriptive on specific activities. We wrote actually 14 activities, right? That we say, okay, I think this these activities really define like what it's like working in WeLab. And we did it for a couple of reasons, right? Number one is we want to inspire people who are planning to join the company to see what does it actually look like working for WeLab. And that actually is sort of like a self-selection as well, right? People read it, feel like this is a company that I want to work for, they will apply. And people feel that, no, I don't really like this style, that they won't apply. And even for existing employees, right, it acts as a very good reminder for the employees, like what it's like, a uh, reminder for what are the behavior that they should continue to have working for this company. And, and so that everyone can be a strong culture influencer to each other. So what I found was in China, you have an overarching culture. I mean, you have the, I think it's the 996 mentality, which is 99, six days a week. And I, I know that you pushed back from that a bit. And that, do many organizations in China have a culture book like you've developed? Not really. I think, okay, Lumbo, every company has different kind of culture. Ours is a mix of the cultures that we've sort of tested and some worked and some didn't work over the years. We don't practice this 996 thing. I think it's just like, I think we respect people needs personal time to recuperate. And also people need personal time to spend time with family. And, and we believe that people should just enjoy themselves over the weekend and come back to work. But I think being very prescriptive and being very clear on the culture actually is good for the organization, especially when you're adding new employees all the time and they're working in different parts of the organization. Yeah. So one of the examples that I saw 
that reflected your culture that you were trying to create was how you and the rest of your executive team created welcome baskets, if I'm not mistaken, that you gave to that you had for your employees once they returned from stay-at-home orders related to COVID-19, correct? Yeah, that's right. That's right. That was a fun thing. So it was uh, thanks to one of the, it was actually the CEO of Wheelab Bank. He actually suggested a few days before everyone came back, they said, why don't we create a small welcome pack for everyone? So there's hand sanitizer, vitamin C sweets, wipes, masks, all sort of stuff, right? Just health and related stuff, right? For every employee. And then we said, yes, we should do that. I mean, one of the very important cultures, people first and also be kind, right? I think this is one of a very strong culture of the company. But we also said, okay, we should not delegate it to someone in the admin or HR department. We want the most senior people in the executive committee to come into office early, like 7, 8 a.m. that morning and pack 200 of these packs by ourselves. Because one of the first thing we talk about in culture book is called never not my job. So we said, when we want to be kind to people, we shouldn't get delegate. We should do it by ourselves. So literally every single one in the management team actually came in that morning and we just packed all the pack, like 200 packs of these welcome packs and we delivered all of them on everyone's table across multiple floors in the building before everyone came in. And they was, and the employees really felt a difference and it, we really lift the value of the organization. They can see it through uh, not something that is in a book, but we actually show them what it means. You know, that's interesting. That was something that really impressed me when I visited you is that the culture book wasn't a task that you asked somebody to do. It really was something that, like what who you are as a person. I mean, it, it was very evident from the very second we met that you're trying to build this company in a way that's a bit different than what many of the companies that we saw in China were, but but more importantly, to really reflect your values. And I think this is a great example where if the leader of a company is living the values and living the way that they want the culture to be, it's a lot easier to instill that culture in others, isn't it? Yeah, I feel that it's very important. And thank you. Thank you, Jim, for a compliment. I think it is not just me. I think it's really how I see the company, my team, and the world, right? And, and not just me, and it's through me and also the founding team and also the seniors, right? So we got together and write this book ourselves. We also didn't delegate to people, right? So a couple of us came up with all the ideas, the pages, and we came up with that 90 pages together with our team. And we really feel that when you really believe in something, right? You want to write it down, you want to share, you want everyone to be very clear about this. And we see the importance of getting the word across. And I think it's evidence in, in a lot of founder-led company too. So your company's growing quickly. Um, you've obviously with the coronavirus, we've all had a little bit of a, a pause button, I guess. But where do you see WeLab a year from now? Uh, will your growth continue, or do you have aspirations to expand your virtual bank beyond Hong Kong? We set ourselves a very clear target where we want to be uh, one year from now, right? I think there are, there are a couple of things, right? The first thing is uh, we want to launch the bank this year. We want to be a very successful launch, and we want people to really see the difference between a traditional bank and the other digital banks versus us, right? And once again, they should see it through the culture of the organization, how we treat our employees and our customers. It will be very, very different. I think that's the first objective, right? The second objective is we have developed interesting technology uh, last year, which is called privacy computing, which is an area that we're very passionate in. And we talked a little bit about big data analytics and AI earlier, right? But I think very important is how do we actually build technology infrastructure and use technology to protect customer data privacy? Right now, when you see the use of data, the storage of the data, the access of the data, the creation of the data, 
you don't know who is accessing using your data, right? So we actually want to build technology and allow multiple sources and organization to be able to be more responsible and more safe in using this data technology. I'm sure you have seen, read a lot of stories about how data got hacked or misused over the last couple of years, right? So we're actually focusing this area called privacy computing, and we've gotten a couple of patents on it. And what we want to do is be able to roll this out to our B2B clients by the same time next year. And the third thing is we're very passionate about uh, Southeast Asia. So we want to see beyond Indonesia if we can do something more. Well, Simon, I'll, I'll tell you what, it is great to have you on the show today. I know we talked about it when we visited you in China. We wanted to have you on the show. And it is great to see how you've adjusted. I mean, obviously, a lot has happened globally in the last couple months, but I'm hoping to get back to China again once everything settles down, both here and there. And if not, love to have you visit us when you come back to the United States, because I know you visit every once in a while, uh, visit some of your friends back in the States. But I really appreciate you being on the show today, and uh, I hope everybody stays healthy. And uh, tell my friends over there I said hi. Thank you, Jim. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Be safe, and I hope to see you soon. So what a great interview with Simon Long from WeBank. I think there's a lot of takeaways from this that reinforce what happened when I visited him in person in, in China in January. First of all, it's a very interesting organization because as opposed to using traditional credit bureaus to analyze a customer's financial worthiness, what they use is mobile data. And what they're able to do is reach a lot more customers. It's about a 100% inclusion factor. I mean, they eliminate people or, or mobile devices that show that there may be not really people behind them. But overall, they're able to not only make credit decisions, but also serve the consumer better using their mobile device. So it's really the entire organization's built around mobile. Secondly, the importance of culture. Not a surprise to anybody that China has a different culture than the U.S., but what is interesting is Simon spent a lot of time in the U.S. and in the places outside of China. I think what he brings to the table is the ability to look at an organization and try to build it around his personal culture, his personal beliefs, and then reinforce it on a daily basis. So it really shows that as a leader, you can do a lot more than an organization if your culture revolves around the way you are and you can continually reinforce that through your own actions. What a great interview. I had a lot of fun with this and, and I am re hoping forward to uh, going back to China. Thanks for listening to Banking Transform, rated as the top five podcasts. Please take a minute to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and most importantly, please don't forget to give our show a five-star rating. While it only takes a minute, these ratings are very important as we try to expand the distribution of Banking Transform to more potential listeners. Also, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out our research we are doing on digital transformation, retail banking innovation, the digital customer experience, and financial marketing for the Digital Banking Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Leah Longbreak, and audio engineer, Sean Rule Hoffman. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Until next time, have a great week.
The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.